Jithi Vicardsgill, this is the Rebel Matters podcast and we're back on the air after a bit of a break. It's been a pretty mental few months for me. Overall, I was in Palestine for the first two weeks of August. I spent a bit of time at the Ada refugee camp in Bethlehem in the West Bank and I travelled around the West Bank a bit as well just to hear people's story, see the hardships they have to endure under the illegal Israeli occupation over there and just show a bit of solidarity for, for their cause. It was a massively eye-opening experience to be out there and I took quite a lot of photographs, recorded quite a bit of audio content and hopefully I'll be able to share that with you in the coming weeks and hopefully a little bit on the Rebel Matters podcast as well. Apart from that, I was going around, did a few, went to a few festivals, uh, Body and Soul, uh, Ziggit after Palestine, I stopped out there in Budapest for a few days on the way home and Electric Picnic, Lulunasa as well of course. And it's been a class summer all around. And the other main thing that's been going on is myself and the rest of the Ackley team here have been working hard to just bring our service up to another level. So it's kind of been all go for the last couple of months, especially, which is why there hasn't been any Rebel Matters podcast episodes out there. But it's time to get the show back on track. The episode this week is a conversation that I had with Dan John just before I went off to Palestine. So we recorded it in the last week of July, I think. Dan is a strength coach and an author and someone I've been following for roughly about the last 10 years. I think I started following him when I went to university in Limerick to start studying sports science there and myself, my housemates and a few other of our friends always had one or two Dan John books doing the rounds and we were always looking to see who had it so we could get a hold of it and get some of that lovely strength and conditioning information into us as well. But as well as being really good training guides and training books, I think Dan really get stuck into the connection that training has with your overall approach in life and it really had a positive influence on me so it was very good to sit down with him and have quite a long chat about training and life in general I suppose. We started off the conversation talking about training philosophy, the importance of having a training philosophy for a coach and the impact that that has on the players or team that you're working with. I recorded this chat with Dan over Skype and it was the first time that I've done a Skype call uh, podcast or recorded a Skype call at all. So the quality of the audio isn't as good as it normally is when I'm sitting down face to face with someone. So I just wanted to put a little pre-warning out there and a little tabroner for the lack of audio quality from time to time during the podcast. But the one thing that I will say is stick with it till the end because Dan has some serious knowledge to share with us. So I hope you enjoy my long ranging conversation with Dan John. Win, lose, draw, no matter what goes on, this is who we are. So for me as a strength coach, the number one thing is the body is one piece. So for me, whenever I think about training, I always think there's, with me, there's no leg day, there's no arm day, there's no pancreas day, there's no liver day. Every day is a whole body day. Every day, you know, we're trying to climb the mountain and get better. The body is one piece. I believe that there's basically three kinds of lifting weights. You pick the weight up, you put it over your head, and you carry it, and that's it. And the final thing, of course, in my in my my philosophy would be all training is complementary. So, you know, if you if you just finished a, a whole bunch of sprints, we don't need to do any conditioning. You already conditioned. Now you look at those three things and you go, well, that's just a couple of things. No, it's my philosophy. It's who we are. And if something new comes in a new piece of equipment, a new training idea, I run it through my system. I run it through my filters. My filters are my philosophy. When I work with really good coaches, when I talk to really good coaches, it doesn't matter what the sport is, I ask them this question, what are the three things? It's always three, by the way. What are the three keys to success? You know, I talked to this very famous American fighter pilot, the only guy ever to fly a warthog 
and an Eagle in combat, two completely opposite kinds of fighter aircraft. And I said, what's the secret? And he goes like this, kind of nods his head and looks around. He goes, speed is life, hit and run, straight lines, little hooks. And he nodded his head like this. And it took probably 45 minutes for him to explain those three things. But the three things came out like that. How long did it take you to develop your own philosophy there when you started coaching? Oh, just a mere, about 30 years. Uh, it was a phone call with Mike Rosenberg in July of 2002. So, you know, we, and I broken my wrist and I started this little newsletter. Still, there's still, for, all of them are still online on my website, danjohn.net. Just go in and read them. They're, they're really good. I'm shocked. I'm really shocked sometimes how good they are. And they were free. And on the second edition, Mike said, you need to put your mission statement, what you believe in. And even though I knew it, I had never, if you don't articulate it, you don't really know it. So you got to sit down sometime and say, okay, no matter what the piece of equipment is, barbell, kettlebell, TRX, um, sandbag, um, rocks, how would I train somebody? Hmm. And then you kind of, and then you kind of just do this with your head and it, all of a sudden you'll start going, well, here's what I would do. And whatever that answer is that covers all that, that's the start as a strength coach of what your mission statement is, uh, what your philosophy is. Now, as a throws coach, I have almost the exact same philosophy, except here's the deal. I'm going to do more repetitions than you. We're going to do more turns than anybody else in the world. We're going we're gonna to try to, we're going to out turn you. We're going to out we're not going to practice longer than you. We're going to practice smarter than you. And if you want how I do it on my website again, it's all free, folks. So just But in danjohn.net, I have a, a free book called A Contrarian Approach to the Discus. And in there, you'll see how I group. My goal is my discus source, one-hour workouts a day. One. But in that one hour, we might do 500 to 1,000 turns. We might throw... Oh, I mean, my kids have added up. We throw 100, 200, 300 times in the workout because we're trying to out, we're trying to outwit you, outthink you, our opponent. And so what the philosophy does is that, and the reason I say an hour is that usually I work at very academically competitive places. So the athletes don't have the time for seven hours a day. Um, one of my former throwers is a very famous judge now. Uh, my doctor is one of for, a former athlete of mine. Uh, my lawyer is a former athlete of mine. Uh, one of my best athletes now is a professor of ceramics. He uh, works at a college teaching ceramics. These guys are all smart people. One of my female athletes is a professor of English up at Boise State. So these are smart people. These are people who are trying to get careers, but they love track and field, so they come out and train with me. So here's the parameter. I'm going to give you one hour. I don't care what the sport is. That's all you got is one hour a day. And in that hour, what are you going to do? Well, if you don't have a philosophy, you're going to do yoga for 15 minutes. You're going to do mobility work for 10 minutes. You're going to do agility work, which I think is the stupidest thing on the planet. You're going to do plyometrics, and then you're going to do curls and tricep extensions, and you won't have thrown the discus one time in the hour, where we're going to throw the discus 300 times, and you're going to throw it. So we're going to win. Over time, we're going to win. So that's one thing I like. By the way, I like that's an interesting thing. It's part of what, it's part of one of the real great lessons I've learned in my life and you're going to miss it. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I might have to say it a few times cause it's, you'll hear it, but you don't hear it. 
I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase decision fatigue. Do you know what decision fatigue is? It's part of the reason Americans are so fat. And I mean it. So a couple of my friends came over from Glasgow and they went shopping and they laughed at the number of choices of coffee we sell in the United States. And I said, trust me, go to the same store and go to the orange juice section. See, in Scotland, you buy orange juice. They got one thing that's called orange juice. Here in the States, it's got vitamin D added, calcium added. But I mean, just low pole, high pole, no pole. There's probably 700 different brands of orange juice. So the love of your life sends you to go get orange juice. You come home with a bottle of orange juice. And she said, I don't want that kind. Well, that's called decision fatigue. And by the way, I took him to my favorite breakfast place, mostly in Europe. And I've noticed this for breakfast, you got two options. You got Irish breakfast or you got continental breakfast, right? That's it. At my favorite place, there's probably 300 different breakfasts. And you look at the menu like this. You know, you look at the menu like this. I don't know. That's decision fatigue. So for years, I've always wondered what made me, I hate to say this, don't take this cocky, but why am I a better coach than so many people? And then I looked at the facilities and the situations I've coached in. I've always coached at places that track and field and even football, American football, were under-budgeted sports. Very little money. I coached at a school track and field that didn't have a track and didn't have a field. There were no throwing rings. So if you're going to coach a discus without a field, what do you do? Well, I loved it because deprivation leads to increased capacity. By not having a perfect ring, by not having a throwing field, I had to outthink the problem. I couldn't just snap my fingers and I wish I had a throwing field. I don't have one. Contrast that to what I see at St. Mary's. I, I love, I, I teach in Twickenham, London. I love the people there and I love the, the, these really hardworking uh, volunteer coaches for track. But what they do in the shot put ring is they have six shot putters and they all line up. Thrower number one takes a throw, coach comments. Thrower number two takes a throw, coach comments. So every time you throw at this school, it probably takes you every five minutes to get one throw in. With my guys, we take heavy rubber balls, you know, like med balls or whatever you got. We have, we have special ones in the States. I'm sure you have them there too. And our guys throw into a wall and the shot goes three feet, hits the wall, drops straight down. You pick it up, you throw again, pick it up, throw again, pick it up. In five minutes with my guys, you can average five or six throws a minute. In five minutes, you get 30 throws in. How much better am I than you? Because I got 30 throws to your one. And over a couple of weeks, we're going to out-repetition you. It's not that I'm a better coach than these people, but because what I didn't have, I didn't have all that stuff, but I did have a wall. By the way, if I don't have a wall, I'll figure out something else too. Your point about the coaching philosophy really resonates. Because I, find, I feel like extremely lucky again that I went for a job interview nearly 10 years ago now, and two of the guys who were interviewing me were two very high-level coaches, top-class coaches, and one of them asked me, what's your coaching philosophy? And I didn't have anything to say. It was like that interview, it was one of the best experiences of my career because I came out of it and I was like, this just has to just be able to come out straight away. You have to be able to just like say it in your sleep. So you come over to my, my practice with this thing and it's a great idea, but I'm going to run it through my filters first. 
So when I run things through my filter, it doesn't mean your idea is bad, but we can't use it with this facility. You know, we don't. Now, in a facility that's X facility or Y facility, yeah, it'll work perfect, but we can't use it here. It's not it's a bad tool or a piece of equipment. Um, for example, the TRXs have to hang from the ceiling, right? Well, I've been in a lot of places where you can't figure out how to hang it from the ceiling. The TRX isn't bad or good. It's just we can't. We don't have the, the ceiling that we can. You follow? Is that so, kind of why you said earlier about the kind of rich kid sports that it's hard to be successful in a rich kid sport because there isn't that depravity. Like you have everything, you have unlimited resources, so it kind of like loses your focus. Is that why you said that earlier? That you know what? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I don't want to say it out loud because that that makes me a bad person. Uh, but yeah, I think it's true. You know, if you have everything. It's there's all you can do is what everybody else is doing. There's going to be no, there's going to be nothing clever about you. You're not going to add something to the mix. And that's great coaching to me. Great coaching is when you overcome deprivation and you realize that by not having these things, it was actually better. And I have found, well, you notice it in team sports sometimes, um, you know, uh, in American football, sometimes, uh, uh, when I coach, you'd lose your best football player. And the funny thing is at the next game, we'd actually be better. We'd be a better team. And people go, wow, you must've really inspired those boys to play harder. And I'd be like, no, I didn't really say Shh, Jack. But then I realized that when you have a superstar, sometimes everyone kind of stands around waiting for something to happen. You see this exact same sort of phenomenon in, in hurling, like what you've seen before, but oftentimes when someone gets sent off and one team gets reduced to 14 men, everyone else just lifts and they can overcome a team that has an extra person on the team or getting beat by a, person, a team that has 14 people. Like, that's kind of, I guess, kind of the same thing. It is exactly the same thing because deprivation increases capacity. In my workshops, I talk about how when I worked, I, when I first got my first master's, so we're looking at 81, 1980, 1981. Uh, I coached full-time. I went to school full-time. And I worked in a cheese factory from 10 p.m. at night till 6.30 in the morning. So I had two full-time jobs and full-time education. And there was one little problem. What didn't I have? Sleep. So I would march through days with three or four hours of sleep. You know? And what I learned is that I could still keep doing everything on three, four hours. So when I became a parent about, it had been about a decade later, Kelly and Lindsay were born and we had those weeks where the kids were sick, whatever. I was sort of used to it. Lack of sleep, deprivation of sleep made me bigger. Uh, lack of great facilities makes you outthink the problem. So when you do have good facilities, you're bigger like if you train at the most magnificent training place in the world and then go compete, it's always a step down always. But if you lift on a bar that's rusty and doesn't always turn and it's bent and the weight, you don't have any light weights. So you got to make massive jumps and do all kinds of crazy stuff. When you go to a weightlifting meet or whatever, having a good Alico bar that spins and being able to, Oh, I got other, you get better. You follow? I remember me and my brother when we used when we started off weightlifting, we used to train with Eddie Finnegan and his dad and I. We started training with him when he was nearly eighty, and he'd get out of the chair, walking up to the gym door, and we'd be like, "Should we help him?" And the next thing, 
he's bench pressing 80 kilos and then his hands are stuck to the bar and you have to peel but the the gym was just an old squash court so one tiny little door with the weights just around the uh, the edge it was only like I think there were three rules they were like you weren't allowed to take steroids um, you weren't allowed to play music when the training was on and you weren't allowed to step over the bar if you did a lift and drop it you had to walk around that was it you freak out if you stepped over the bar but uh, I mean, same idea it was just like rough and just class yeah. training session for two hours <laughs> down and got home yeah I, I'm with you my friend 100% so so you asked about philosophy but you seem to already understand the big part of it um, and I do I have you know I always gr- joke about my assistant coaches are coach repetition coach pain and coach gravity coach repetition is my assistant coach who insists that we do more reps The answer to all questions are more reps. Now, this is throwing, but it's also, you know, I write every day because writers write. Throwers throw, jumpers jump, sprinters sprint, lifters lift. And the person who gets the most reps in wins. So I write hundreds of pages of stuff that never get printed because writers write. Coach Payne is a great teacher. Uh, Coach Payne tells you what you're doing wrong. So if you decide to deadlift, uh, you're going to do this deadlift challenge 30 days and every day for those 30 days, you're going to do a max deadlift. By about day five, Coach Payne's going to step in and say, that's really stupid. You know that? And you got to listen to Coach Payne. Uh, coach Payne is a wonderful coach. Uh, when you're coaching like the throws or the lifts, if it hurts, you are doing it wrong. I love that. Well, Dan, it hurts when I do this. Well, because you're doing it wrong. Oh, I thought you said the goblet squat. Yeah, I did say the goblet squat, but you're not doing it right. I said push your el- your knees out with your elbows, and you're not. Oh, hey, that doesn't hurt. I know it doesn't hurt because Coach Payne will step up. And, of course, Coach Gravity is this concept I use where I'm going to find something, and we are going to out in, – in American football, we have trick plays. A trick play is something you throw in to throw your opponent off. So in American football, you would – pitch the ball to one guy, he'd throw it way downfield and then pitch it to somebody else. That's a trick, but you don't run that every day. But I would train trick plays as hard as some of the other stuff. And we'd only run it once a game, once every three games. But the reason I'd always run those trick plays more is because when there's that kind of ball handling and that many things having to work, everybody gets more excited, more into it. Focusing on that is going to cascade into all the basic, simple stuff, too. So I'm going to do more reps than you on the basic, simple stuff. But when I decide to get cute with the fancy stuff, when I'm going to try to get clever, I'm going to try to get really clever and then practice it a lot. I'm interested in how like strength and conditioning work fits into the preparation of um, a team in the sense that they have a lot of reps to get with their sports-specific skills as well? There's a thing called fractals, and that's if you look at a leaf, it looks like a tree. If you look at a rock, it looks like a mountain. I like my strength practices, my strength training, to look like the sport we're playing. So when I'm working with a discus thrower or a jumper as a, as a, high, a track and field athlete, they have the event, and then they rest and wait. They have the event. They rest and they wait. They have the event, okay? So Olympic lifting works really well with that. You snatch, take a few minutes off. You snatch, you take a few minutes off. You see how the fractal works, okay? 
If I'm working with American football, I want the weight room to be as loud as I can make it. Not with music. Music is crap. I think if you need music to train, well, you just, I don't know what the word is. When I'm training in a weight room uh, with the American football team, what I want to be loud is like, we'll put chains on the bench press and the front squat racks. We'll have seven front squat racks, seven bench racks, and they're all chained up. So every rep is, I want, uh, Olympic lifts, bang, bang, bang. I want that throw down the ground, the slam ball drill, bam, bam, bam. I want tumbling, and I want the group. I want the athlete to go front squat, bench press, tumble, slam ball, power snatch, front squat, bench press, tumble. You follow that? Loud, constantly changing planes, constantly changing levels of explosion. Lots of noise, lots of things to keep in their mind just like an American football game. So when you're coaching a sport, strength conditioning sport, one of the things we can help with is get the athlete used to what happens on the field of play. And if you don't do that, I don't think you're, you're probably not maximizing what you can do for the athlete. Like for a track athlete, it's not a bad idea not to talk to them between sets and snatches because a track meets you don't talk to anybody. So practice not talking to people. You know, if they have to, you know, if they're, you know, they, they do a set of snatch, hey, hey, snatch, and they pull out their little Facebook thing and they, hey, honey, I'll be home, Dan, Dan John, and he's making me work out too hard. And I'm so sad. Well, you can't have this on a track. You can't, you're not allowed to electronics to track. What happens if one of your athletes whips out their phone in a Dan John training session? Oh, shit. <laughs> I get it. Like, for example, I'll tell people, I will take calls like, my wife is on the road a lot. We both travel a lot. My wife calls, I answer it because I know how hard it is on the road. And if my daughters call, it's not so much now, but years ago, especially, I would answer it in case there's a problem. Okay. If you have a set of rules like that, okay, who you take calls from and who you text? Um, like, I don't think girlfriends, boyfriends deserve texts during workouts. If you can't, and I always tell them, Okay, if the person can't, trust me, they they can survive the two hours without you. And because if you do get married, they're going to be doing everything they can to get out of, you know, ignore you for 30 and 40 years. So so that's the problem we have. And a lot of these athletes don't have any situational awareness now. Um, you know, we'll, I'm just shocked sometimes. Uh, we'll go. <laughs> it's not <laughs> like the group I had today. We went on a nice ruck today, a nice heavy rock and it was fun but uh, i'll notice sometimes with younger kids they'll step in dog poop and i'll be like how did you not see that pile of poop i'd love to play american football with those guys because i would take them i would just knock them out of the game early because they'd be like focusing on one thing and i'd take them across the head you know how does the training program change from say from a young kid who's starting off doing a strength work for a sport or for just to get strong uh, up to athlete and on the adults and older adults. It's in never let go, I think, but I have, the th- I use the three words from East Germany. First is accumulation. And this is so frightfully important and, and people ignore it all the time. And it's getting worse in the Americas all the time. Accumulate is when you play as many sports as you possibly can. I think you need to learn, you know how to, you should know how to swim, ride a bike, ride a skateboard, uh, box, wrestle, play every sport under the sun. You should know how to do every calisthenic, you know, from jumping jacks, push-ups, you guys call them press-ups, every idiotic 
calisthenic in the world, you should know the basics of the Olympic lifts, the basics of the power lifts, the basic bodybuilding movements. Okay. Do you see what accumulation is? You accumulate all these things. And then, and this can happen either monthly, yearly, or by career. Then we decide to intensify. So when we intensify, we've got to cast off some of the stuff. Okay. I don't want you playing. Uh, if you're a discus thrower, uh, but you're also a hurler and a kayaker during discus throwing season, no hurling and kayaking. We're going to throw the discus more in the Olympic lift more. Okay. And then right towards get to the end of the season. And there's one other time for this too. And just, just a second. I call it transformation when literally we're going to turn you into just a discus thrower, hammer thrower, javelin thrower. We don't care about anything else. So if you tell me that you had six pack abs, I'll slap you across the face. I don't care. Is the javelin going far? Cause that's all we care about. And so transformation is when we transform you into the best you can be this season, this career. But there's another time for transformation. It's when you slide from one sport to the next. In my case, very often it was going from like American football to track and field. And so there's this period of time where you need to kind of reorient the athlete from a collision sport uh, to a, to an individual sport. So trans, there's two sides of transformation. In my mind, I have no clutter. I see them both. This is, in one case, I'm transforming you from a, a very generally trained athlete to intensification to a very, very razor knife. You are just a discus thrower. So if there's a swim test at school that day, you might not do as well as you normally do. Okay. In fact, you probably should say, I'm not going to do it because I got a big track meet this week. You, you got that. And then the other side of transformation is I'm taking you from here back to there. So we start with um, accumulation, intensification, transformation, and then we'll kind of like something melting, go back to accumulation. Okay. Makes sense. And then ideally through a career, you would um, pulse upward, okay? The base would broaden, the peak would be higher. The base would broaden more, the peak would be higher. That's the ideal. How does that develop then as, as somebody gets older and they're continuing to do strength training? Like, how does that change then? Well, that's the problem. Now, as you become more and more elite, you know, you have to start tossing out. The problem is your off-season begins to shrink as you get as your career goes on because you've got to get, you know, you've got to get focused. The thing that helps me the most here, if you don't mind, now I am answering your question, the standards, being able to tell your athlete, you need to, you know, press this much, pull this much, squat this much, hinge this much. You should be here on your farmer walk there on this, have a list of standards. And the idea with the athlete is I can sit down and say, okay, the first year, it took us six months to build you up to the standard. The second year, it took us uh, a month to build you up to the standard. This year, after your second workout, you're up to standard. What does that tell us about the weight room? And the athlete will go, uh, I've become pretty strong. you become very strong. So strong that the weight room isn't your problem anymore. Your problem is the ring, the run-up, uh, the field of play, uh, the way you handle the arousal, 
are you at the right place mentally? So as I, as I move up an athlete's career, uh, when, when people allow me to do this, I try to get them as strong as they need to be as quickly as we can, and then try to put them into situational things for competition. Um, I think this is an, okay, this is going to sound very strange. Okay. This is going to just kind of go with me on this. How do you as a coach practice coaching? Very few people practice coaching. And I think it's very important. How, how long does it take to master exosis? So the next game up, uh, I think we call it checkers in the United States, but I think you got to call it droughts or drafts. Drafts, yeah. And you get one across and it becomes a king and a little bit more advanced game, right? And then the next game is called chess. I love chess, but the problem with chess is it's not a good model for coaching. There's a game I discovered that really works well to train the coach's mind. And I'm serious about it. The game's called Connect Four. And I'm going to tell you, it makes a, makes you a better coach. And the reason it makes you a better coach is to be good at Connect Four, you have to play in offense and defense at the same exact time, which is what we do on the field, which we do in the track is that you're constantly moving ahead on your opponent, but you're stopping your opponent. You're trying to get, you're trying to get edges. And the thing I discovered about connect four is every time the Bob, every time the Bob is dropped, the field of play changes, which is exactly like sports. So I tell young coaches, sometimes I go, you need to practice. And the thing is all of a sudden you look and the guy will say, I won. And you look, how did I miss that? And that's why I want you to do games of tactics. Uh, Obviously, tic-tac-toe, uh, X's, O's, is too easy. Droughts, not bad. Chess, there's so many rules and so many things. But Connect Four might be a great game to practice this kind of thinking. And I want you to look at it when you lose, especially, and go, how did I not see that? Because that prepares you for good coaching. I know this sounds odd, but when you just take a moment to look back and go, okay, how did I miss that? That transforms you into a better coach because to me, coaching comes down to almost just two things, okay, as a strength coach. Number one, is your athlete up to standard? If you have a team of 62 athletes are all up at standard and you lose, well, it ain't my fault. I just sent you 62 athletes who are up to standard. It's your, your, it's your fault. And of course, the second thing is gaps. Whatever you're not doing is your problem. So I always tell people, push, pull, hinge, squat, loaded carry, right? But if I go to a place and no one squats deep, well, your gap is you need, you need goblet squats. And that's why I always bring in goblet squats because no strong, no strong guy wants to lose, you know, on paper you squat 300, but it's a quarter squat. So I can get you to goblet squat 24, and make your thighs burn from it. Okay. And of course, most people never do loaded carries. So just doing sled work, pharma walks or whatever fills the gaps. So for me as a strength coach, if you're up to standard and you're filling in those gaps, we're okay. We're okay. But that's why you play connect four to practice saying, how did I miss that? So when I come to your gym and you think you're doing loaded carries and I look and I see that you, yeah, you do them every nine weeks, you do farmer walks. 
down and back. Well, you're not doing loaded carries. And you'll go like this. How did I miss that? So whenever I help people with programming, I have this little rule. It's called rule one. There is no rule two. Uh, Your push, your pull, and your squat numbers have to be the exact same numbers. So what I usually see in programs, it's in one of my books, and it's a true thing, 237 pushes in a week, 113 pulls, and 25 squats. Well, I point that out, and he goes, well, I want to get hypertrophy. And I'll always say, well, um, yeah, you're not going to. Just doing skull crushers is not going to do jack. And I tell them, so what I want you to do is the same number of squats that you do pushes. Now, 237 squats in a week. You better eat some fiber, baby, because you're going to be spending some, oh. And you're going to have some hard poopies. I tell you that, man. You know, but and so I, I, I'll tell them, well, how many should we do? And I say, why don't you do this? You know, 25 reps a day, three days a week. What's that? I go, well, that's five sets of five in the bench press. That's five sets of five in the row and five sets of five in the back squat. Workout B, five sets of five in the press, five set, overhead press, five sets of five in the pull-up, five sets of five in the front squat. Repeat that till death. Is that a good workout? Well, they'll go, I, I don't know. And I'll say, have you ever done five sets of five with real weights in the front squat? With real weights? No. I know you haven't. Because you'd shut up and, you know, those are the kinds of things that I strive for when I'm working with athletes is trying to get them to, to build their engines more appropriate. I try to, I, I choose, kind of depending on a person's structure, you can either build their engine with hinges or with squats. And uh, most of the people you work with in Ireland, you'll never be able to build them up with squats. Uh, you got the Celtic hip. Stu McGill said I had the classic Celtic hip. Being Irish, I'm built to throw far. I wanted to ask you about your, you know, your the nine thirty sessions that you have at your at your house. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they're kind of uh, infamous now amongst anyone who's following you on in the strength and conditioning world. What is it that makes those sessions so special? Like, why why have they become so so sort of renowned? So here's the thing. Today we had a 50 year old guy with a bad knee and a 26 year old guy with a bad knee. So. How did that change things? With our gym, like what we're trying to do is build a training method that can be adapted to a different version of the same thing, regardless of who comes in the door. So it doesn't really change anything at all, really, in the sense that like everyone is still training together and everyone's still take, taking part. It's just that people maybe do a different version of the same thing so that everyone's still sort of on the same path. So what you're telling me is when you open the doors and people with all kinds of backstories come in, you as a coach have to change one or two small things to make the workout work. Intentional community does this. If you're getting ready for a kettlebell cert, I'm getting ready for a kettlebell cert. If you have a bad knee, we all have bad knees. If you just got divorced and you need a quiet day, well, we're all going to have a quiet day. So what it is is intentional to come together, but we're a community. And we do, I mean, we try to do, you know, the basics. I mean, obviously, you know, you know, all the training, the numbers and the thing. And the, I never count reps in our gym. We don't count reps. I mean, somebody will say it's hard in the beginning because I'll, I'll say like, well, after that, you know, I don't know, goblet squat. Well, how many reps? I don't know, three to 10. Well, that's vague. Well, have you ever done, you ever done deadlift 
followed by hip thruster, followed by goblet squat before? No. Well, you'll see why it's going to be a little vague. Because on that third rep, when that butt is working harder than ever worked in his life, you might only do three reps. For me, I, I figured out how to, oh, you know, I've done this. I know what to do. I'll do 10. So there's no reps. There's I don't care what load you use. I don't care. Uh, we're trying to seek mastery of the movement. We're trying to seek uh, empathy for each other. We're trying to care for each other. We're trying to be each other's best friends. Uh, your eyes are on me as I train. Uh, I'll say something stupid as a joke to you. We'll laugh, which gets us through three or four more things. Right now, I am sweating like a still sweating. And it was two and a half hour ago that I finished. And we talked the entire time. It's funny. We got into a big conversation about Phil Maffetone's work on our rucking. On Wednesday, we go for a long walk with heavy vests, heavy uh, weights, and uh, weights in our hands. Okay. So you go. You go two to three miles, you know, three to three to just under five k, and you walk. And I wear uh, I wear about a twenty eight kilo vest, and I carry one to three kilo hand weights, depending. And we walk for about an hour, and we go up hills, down hills, up. My little monitor said I did seven flights of stairs today, but it was just the hills, you know, the little small hills. I have bad hips. But I got into a hip discussion with the guy with the bad hip. And we talked about how the more weight you put in your hands, the easier it is on the hips because the weights tend to make you glide forward. And then we talked about heart rate. We talked about Phil Maffetone and his work. And in a one-hour period, we probably had three lectures. Come, you know. So that's what intentional community does. And once you've done it a few times, you go, yeah. I need this. I have people who travel, like my friend Mike Falvo. He can only make it Mondays and Fridays. That's the highlight of his week. You know, we got we got a couple of cancer survivors who only come on Thursday. It, Thursday is tonic. Do you want the whole week? Uh, real quick, the whole week. So Monday tends to be uh, kind of a traditional bodybuilding day mixed with cardio. So 30 seconds of a bodybuilding movement, rest 30 seconds, 30 seconds of cardio, rest 30 seconds for 30 minutes. If you guys have questions on the link here, uh, type in Dan John 30 slash 30. I've got a bunch of articles on this on uh, OTP on target publishing. Just put those and people get it. So Monday tends to be a general bodybuilding date. So for us, bodybuilding is my attempt to get men to work the, uh, the, the rhomboids, the, the, all the Cobra muscles back here. Cause the, and the best way I can do it is mix it with arm work. So if I mix it, if I do arm work, every American male will do all the upper back work with what they need. Uh, Tuesdays is butt day. We include a, t- a goblet squat test on that day too. Uh, Wednesday's rucking, so that's the heavy backpack and weights. Thursday is tonic, which means in the old language to tune the body like a violin. You tune the violin. That's a tonic workout. And then Friday we focus on loaded carries. Uh, Friday is a hard workout, deceptively hard workout. You probably only do eight different loaded carries, eight different lifts, eight different weights, a farmer walk, bag carries, sled drags. And you only go down and back. Yeah, you go down and back eight times. That doesn't sound like much. But when we go and eat brunch, man, we all kind of stare at each other. And the nice weight staff over at Landmark says, you guys work out hard? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I did. Yeah, food. I need food. What kind of food? Food. Food. Food is good. Food. You know, and because a loaded carries just creep up on you. You don't notice it. 
Um, so that's our weekly intentional community workouts. Uh, some afternoons on my own, I'll go to a gym over here called Vasa, and there's uh, uh, five machines I use. I'm 61, so I do a little extra work for the area around my knees. And I do a little extra work on the, all those years of throwing. I try to work this. The, this so there's a machine for pulling down and a, and a row machine. I do those. And I do kind of this little, uh, it's a dip machine. I can easily do dips, but I like this because it makes me a little more. It, I've got crappy shoulders from throwing. So I like it because it stretches out the place that hurts. So five machines. Uh, the joke is this, because I know everybody at the gym and they say, they notice that my workouts take about seven, eight minutes there. And I always say, guys, I just come in here to work my weak points. That's about a six-minute workout. So that, okay, that's funny because I only have let's see, weak points in And then uh, the other thing I do almost daily now, there's a place right over here. When you come visit me, I'll take you there. It's a cryo, cryotherapy place, but it's a full body one, including the head. So I have some concussion issues. Uh, from my past and different things, uh, sports and life. And supposedly, supposedly, as we say in the States, uh, it helps with concussions. I just like the fact that I go to bed at 8.30 because the cryotherapy is just like, it's like two really good Irish whiskeys. It's the chamber where you stand there and I drop 30 degrees skin temperature in three minutes. So I come in at 91 and I'm down to 60 or lower in three minutes and my hair and my arms, I got to, they'll get frost on them. 10 minutes on a shaker plate. And then I, I have the, I, then I have the massage and inj- smolder injuries. I have uh, they have that really weird drill gun, the gun. And I, I, I have massage out, uh, cause they're friends of mine, a few old injuries just to make sure it stays pliable. But Dan, what does your philosophy with nutrition tie in with the gym? If every one of your clients ate protein, veggies, water, nothing else for two years, you'd be the greatest coach of all time. Uh, let me, okay. So let's go through. So the umbrella, you know, like the body's one piece, the umbrella, eat like an adult. What do you mean by that? Protein, veggies, water, sometimes fast before you train, sometimes go hungry. That, that'd be it. There's your million dollars. I fast. I don't eat now until after I train. So like last night I ate dinner at four the workouts at nine 30 in the morning. And then we got to the rest. We got, we ate brunch this morning. I probably ate at about 11. So I had a 17 hour fast with the workout in there. There's another thing. People have got to learn that hunger is not some crazy disease. It's just hunger. You know, you know, it's like I, I met when I was up in uh, the North one time, I met one of the blanket men. And after you talk with the blanket men for a few minutes, who I think he did a 20 plus day fast, you just got to shut up about the fact that you're not eating for 24 hours. Okay. You're not a hero because you skipped a meal. Okay. Uh, it's like sometimes I read the stuff from the paleo people or uh, the vegans are just, they're all bad. They're all awful. Um, I mean, really that, that, that they, they turn it all to a religion. It's like, just shut up, get off the cross. We need the nails. Okay. Uh, just good for you. You're not eating whatever you're not eating, but just shut up. That's the, the you're not, you know, uh, well, I know places in the world we can send you where there is no food. Then, then look how heroic you are. You know. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your about your writing. If that's all right. Um, how many books have you got at the minute? Fourteen. What makes you keep on writing books? You know, it's funny if you'd have said to me, "What makes you keep throwing the discus?" And I'd always say, "You know, I just want to see it go farther." 
You know, uh, why do I write? Um, I believe that you have urges in your life that you can barely put your hand on. I don't, one of my urges is my necessity to write. I love it. Um, I also believe, and I don't want to get too religious or anything, but I said I had a terrible uh, speech impediment as a kid. And, I, and one time my brother, my cousin said to my brother, he goes, well, what's Danny doing? And he goes, well, he's making his living, you know, as a writer and he does workshops. And Bill supposedly said, Danny can talk. They never talk. But I think when I got, there is a gift and the gift is called teaching. And I think I got it. So I was in the seventh grade and we had a, our sister, uh, we had, I had Irish nuns and she said, uh, they asked us to write a kind of a free form thing. And I turned it in and the next day she read it to the class and said, you know, Danny, you're an excellent writer. So I wasn't used to compliments and my thought process was right then. I can remember it so clearly. How would I pay for insurance if I was a writer? Because, you know, I always thought you had to get a job as a cop or a teacher or, or the military. Some of, you know, they pay insurance. It's just funny. And it just kind of stuck in my mind. Uh, I got a lot of pushback. From a lot of people didn't like the fact that I was a writer. Um, uh, I would turn in things. I used to, I'd be at a school and people would ask for things and I'd write it. And Oh, I remember one time this English teacher saying, huh, I didn't know you could write. And I wanted to say, you know, right there. Uh, what do you think I am? Just just because I'm a jock doesn't mean I'm stupid. It's funny. Someone one time said I was full of myself. I said, if you've ever seen my CV, you wonder why I'm not more cocky. You know, because, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've been on academic scholarships. I've traveled all over the world. I wrote 14 books. I've had three clear bestsellers. Shut up. I'm pretty good. But I'm also a good athlete, too, you know. How it started, and then I was very fortunate when I worked at uh, the Diocese of Salt Lake City. I worked with a guy named Jack Schrader, a blessed memory, great man. And I started this little column to get some, I really was trying to get information out, but I found that if I wrote a column, it was the best way to get information out. It's like right starting a newsletter for your gym. It's a great way to get, if it has a story, people will read it. And Jack told me one time, he goes, people love stories and stories about people. And it took me a long time to mine what a genius statement that was. He would come up to my desk. And he would put this article down, published article, and go, yeah, right there. That's where you caught your audience. And I go, oh, man, thank you. He would tell me about how, okay, so here's what I'm hearing from your readers. Because he was on, he was a real on-the-ball guy. And he knew to make phone calls. He was a, he used to be an editor at a very important American newspaper. And he was retired, just volunteering as a proofreader. And he goes, well, I've made some calls. And here's the feedback I'm getting about your articles. Because I would get other feedback. And he'd go like this, and that's, that's not correct. That's that's not what that's not what the people are saying. Uh, it was so Jack shaped me. So I wrote um, a ten years. I wrote a column a week. I probably have three hundred to five hundred article columns, you know, for there. I never got paid a nickel. And then I wrote this article called on the overhead squat for a magazine called the Dino Files. It was very popular, and I wrote three more for them. Never got a nickel. And then. Uh, uh, the really turning point in my life was um, two of my athletes were trained down in Las Vegas with Charles Staley. Chris Shugart from Teen Nation was there. And when he heard me speak, he wrote a column, and the column said, I don't care what it costs. If it's anywhere in the world, if Dan John is speaking, you get yourself there. And overnight, 
after 30 years, I became a success. And uh, they asked me to write two articles. Uh, uh, they, and I got more money for that first article than I, there was more than a month's salary for me. And then pretty soon I was writing them all the time. And the book came out and we, my wife and I went from being a, uh, kind of a school teacher, coach and banker to doing very well. But it was that, it was that one article by Chris Sugar. Yeah. And that's funny. And that's funny how it happens. Huh? What do you do now? You dance to get yourself into the, the sort of creative flow to keep on writing. Do you have this, have you got a philosophy for writing as well to get yourself into that state? Have your income, have your uh, house payment based on it. You know, um, when I was, when I, uh, in the States, you know, you get scholarships to college for athletics. And uh, so I'm very used to putting my body out there, training through pain, through lack of sleep, through travel, through crappy conditions to compete because my income relied on my ability to perform. Okay. So I, I'm going to tell you a few hints now, but the thing that helps me the most is I came up to this conclusion that I'm going to measure how my audience, you have to have a measurement in everything. I measure how you like my work by my royalties. I hate to be that way. But in the modern thing with Kindle, I mean, I'll put a book on it. We have books on Amazon. I get one star reviews because Kindle didn't work right. You know, so you can't, you can't base reviews on Amazon stars, you know, right? You, you follow? So I base it now on royalty. Now to explain the system. So before I go to bed at night, I make uh, the coffee for the morning. The smell of coffee wakes me up in the morning. So it's between, I set it for about 530 my alarms go off at six, but I've never, rarely do I get wakened by an alarm clock unless I'm jet lagged. And then that's a different set of rules. Okay. So I, I get up, I'm drinking coffee. I tend to go on and answer emails first thing in the morning because that gets you warmed up. The fingers warmed up, the brain warmed up. And then I just do any and all writing assignments I have. My, my, my publisher, Lorie Draper, thinks it's hilarious because she'll ask me for an article. And I'll tell Tiff at one o'clock in the afternoon, I'll say, Tiff, I got to write an article for Larry at three o'clock. I'll send her a 10 page article because you just, once you, once you start to crush writing, writing gets easier. Uh, you've just got to learn to write. You just, uh, and you got to write like you talk. You got to write like you think. Um, it's okay to go back and fill in later. Most of you know, it, it's okay to, I'm not a good outline follower, but I use this thing here. I call I, my joke is this is my brain. It's just one of these little moleskin things. And when I, when this is my to-do lists and stuff. And so for me, if I come up with an idea, I just write it down. Now, if I don't have that, then I have little notes in my iPhone and I'll just write down the basics. Uh, sometimes I'll come back a week later and say, well, that's stupid. That's not very good. It's just not crap, you know, just crap. It's a crappy idea. It didn't go anywhere. And sometimes it turns into a book. Like the phrase, now what? Now what started as a, as a discussion. Um, I was explaining that. So I won this huge Highland Games two years in a row. And the second year, Tiff could tell that when I was up there, I was done. I was like, I mean, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying I had done what I set out to do. Now what? And we went home and I said, you know, I'm 50. I've achieved every goal I've ever wanted in my life. Well, now what? Well, 
that became the book. Now what? <laughs> now what? You know, because so that little discussion, now what? And, and got to kind of shrug, shrug your shoulder and put your hands like this and go, now what? Uh, turned into a very good book about how I coach athletes, how I teach athletes to perform. And it's funny because it doesn't sell well with athletes and coaches, but it's huge in business. It's probably my best business book. You know, it's the shark habits, the pirate maps and all that stuff. Well, I strive very hard to teach you and everybody else to have a good balance in life. You know, um, so, you know, the word integrity means to be one in, from integers. And, and moral integrity means be the same person in every situation. In eschatology, it means in the afterlife, you will remain you. You know, you won't become part of the universal soul. Um, integrity is, to me, the most important thing. So you might have six-pack abs and, you know, broad shoulders, but if your kids hate your guts, you're a loser. You know, you're, you, you're not a winner. You know, okay, you got that medal, and good for you, you got the medal. But your dog hates you, your kids hate you, your ex-spouses hate you, your neighbors hate you. That's not, that's not a, the word fit comes from the old Nordic, to knit. To knit, you're not well knitted. Yeah, you got this little metal, good for you, hanging around your neck, but you're, you're a mess. You're a garbage pail with a nice metal around it. You're the best garbage in the neighborhood. So that's a big issue with me. This is a, this is a big thing for me. So that's why it's so important. Like, you know, financially, you know, you were told as a kid to put away 10%, right? So I retired at 52, two years of age and people said, how'd you do it? And I said, well, don't you remember when your mom and dad said, save 10%? And I go, yeah, well, I did that. And you remember when coach Mon said to uh, lift weights three days a week, throw four days a week for eight years. Yeah. Well, I did that. And when they said to eat like an adult, I did that. And when they said to say, I love you to the person you love every day, I did that. You get that? I think the secret. So when you're talking about life and living, the lessons you learn in the weight room and the field of play carry over. You know, you've worked with people. I know you have who, oh, I got to get in shape for this wedding next weekend. Well, how did you wait until now? Uh, oh, I'm retiring next week. I better save some money this week. Well, that's going to last one week. So good luck on that. You know, you know, um, everything in life, the same, the same basic truths come out over and over and over. I, I think I'm very good with finance because I'm a good, I think I'm a good coach. I look at my finances like I look at a good coach. You know, if you, you know, if I beat the living hell out of you on Friday and you're supposed to compete Saturday, ain't nothing there. If you spend all your money on Friday and something comes along Saturday, you can't do it. You fall. Are, are you kind of saying that like the weight room and the way of training that, that you have is a microcosm for to the bigger picture? Yeah, absolutely. So, and see, in that sense, if you were to look at the flip side of that, and you can talk about this as, uh, as much or as little as you want to, but within the fitness industry, like the things that you were saying here aren't the – that's not the bulk of the fitness industry today. It's like the opposite where it is promote the six, you know, like six weeks, get ripped and stuff like that and get the abs. What's that giving back to society, the greater picture on the other side of it? You're exactly right. Yeah, that, that is it. In a, I mean, you're, you're done. Once you have that realization, you're finished. So I started lifting weights in 1965. 
Okay. How many six week programs is that? That's a lot of six week programs. You know, it's a lot of over two weeks to a tighter tummy. That's a lot of that stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a, there's an American, uh, uh, financial writer here. He says the very first thing you need to do is add up all the money you've ever earned. And then you look at your debts and then you look at your savings and you say, this is what I earned. Here's my savings and here's my debt. What did I do with all that money? You can do the same thing as a strength coach. You know, pull out every journal you ever wrote and go, here's all the, here's all the lifts I've ever done. And here's the body you have. What the hell have you been doing? You know, uh, it'd be great to keep, what a great to have a food journal from. Now I have my lifting journal from 1971 until now, but it'd be cool to have a food journal too. And just add up some, oh God, that'd be crazy. Add up all the calories you've consumed. <laughs> and then <laughs> put your body, I don't know if that's, that would be an interesting thing. But so the same lessons you get in finance, the same lessons you get in strength. You've put all this work in supposedly, and supposedly as Joey says on uh, Friends, supposedly. Uh, you put all this work in in the weight room. You've done all these supplements and this is how you look. It's, it's, it's important. And uh, I think it's true with the, the way you deal with your family, uh, your, 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 you know, the relationship with the person you love. You know, Tiff and I have just celebrated 30 years together in, 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 our, in our marriage. And, you know, I, I can walk around this house and say, okay, we... Both of our, this means probably nothing to your European audience, but our daughters graduated debt-free from college, which is something you don't even appreciate. It's so big here. We have a real nice house. We have, you know, nice, we have good things. We, have, we donate deeply to causes we care for. Um, famously, when I was in Ireland, we took care of that little good girl from Belfast, you know. But if at the end of 30 years, you kind of sit around and you hate each other's guts, it's not, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, so everything you learn in the weight room ties off into the real world, and the real world ties into the weight room. Oh, uh, it's a tough lesson, but you only get one body. So I just wanted to ask you um, something that you touched on very briefly there about, um, and you mentioned it again with um, one of your daughters graduating debt-free from college. I think that in Ireland, I don't, it's not as severe as it is in America, because I know it's much more expensive to go to college in America than it is in Ireland, but the vast majority of young people when they come through university in Ireland have got very large m- amount of debt. I did. And then if you want to try and buy a house, you have to take a mortgage and they know way more debt. Like one of the best things I did was just clearing off all, all my debts. And I think that I'm quite unique in the sense with the people that are the same age as me, that I'm just, I think that people are there with 20, 30, 40,000, 50,000 euros in debt. And it's kind of a funny feeling though, because I felt like, if you want to, if you're a young person, you're growing up, and then all of a sudden you're an adult, you're 25, say for example, and you've got 30,000 euro debt. You're not really starting from zero, like so that you can move forward. You're starting way down. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like how, how that how that's the case for young people? Yeah, I tell you, that is a it is a stranglehold around your neck, man. Uh, I uh, I I listened to a book years ago. I don't even know if you can still find it. It was called Debt Free Millionaire. And the idea was to take five, six, seven years, 
get yourself debt free and become a million dollars in assets. And it took me a little bit longer, but it's like one of those things where it was such a great goal. So for example, you and I go out tonight and you take your credit card out and buy, you know, fish and chips and two Guinness, but you don't pay it off when the bill comes. That fish and chips and Guinness is going to double in price, maybe even triple in price by the time you pay it off. Debt is a strangle on your neck. Debt is a millstone around your neck. So remember I talked about deprivation increases capacity and decision fatigue. Well, debt, getting rid of debt frees you. So if you're debt free, I literally can walk out of this house and I'd lose a lot. Obviously, it'd be stupid, but I could just walk out the door of this house. We we don't we own it clear. Uh, I have no debt. So because I have no debt, if something big in life comes up, I can go a ninety degree turn in my life. You know, um, uh, when I got this job in St. Mary's, I had no issues at all with anything. I mean, I was able to jump on the plane, uh, go right through customs, uh, take, sit at this pub because I have put myself in a position that I can say yes to life. And that's what you want to do with your finances, with your body. You know, you don't want to be, if it's an auto accident or injury or explosion, I get it, but you, you don't want to be my age and turn yourself into a diabetic and then have your feet chopped off. That, there's no freedom there, right? You can't just, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go to Ireland. You can't do that with those things. Everything gets harder. Everything gets more expensive. Everything becomes more difficult. So debt, getting rid of debt frees you. Having a healthy body frees you. Having good friends frees you. Good friends and family. I, if I have to take off right now on, on the Uber ride to the airport, I could make one or two phone calls and everything in my life would get taken care of until I got back. You know, the, the great line from Jerome K. Jerome, uh, a friend or two worthy of the name. You know, that's one of the things I live by. Uh, he wrote a book called Three Men in a Boat. He has this little phrase. I'm not going to get all of it right, but uh, something along the lines is, you know, all you, need, all you need to fill your boat in life is a little bit of food and more than enough to drink because thirst is a dangerous thing. And then he talked about, and then a friend or two worthy of the name and a pipe. I wanted to ask you about young people today because of the fact that you've, you've been a leader in the strength and conditioning world and helped a lot of young coaches come through. So you've had a lot of contact with, with young people. What's, what's the toughest thing for young people today? Well, in fact, I'm really glad one of my interns and friends, uh, Lacey, Lacey Helfer, she's doing this workshop and I, and I listened to the whole thing uh, called I think they're called Generation Z, Coaching Generation Z. And what I realize is that it is just, it's, it's back to day one, Coaching 101. I have to talk to my athletes in a way they can hear me, you know, and listen to me. And with the younger generation coming up, very often I will say something and they'll want to cross-reference it on Google. And I'll be like, trust me, I've done this for, you know, coaching for 40 years, lifting for 53, but they'll want to look it up. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that they're the wired generation. So they sometimes will come back. Like I have this one guy, actually I struggle with him a lot. 
because he constantly will use the internet to counter my experiences. Like, I don't think you're strong as a male unless you can double body weight deadlift. Okay, I just don't think you are. I'm not even strong. I don't think you're there yet. And he weighs about two, he weighs about 90, but can't deadlift 180. But what he'll do is he'll talk about all these mesocycles, macrocycles, you know, high, you know, resonance cognitive training, blah, blah, blah. Hey, dude, you're just not strong enough. You follow? So that would be the issue I would have with the generation. He has lots of stuff, but he doesn't have wisdom. He's got a lot of knowledge, but he doesn't know. The longer I coach, I'll go to workshops and I'll hear about that the foot is actually a trampoline, that the foot, the hips, and the diaphragm are all basically the same kind of uh, trampoline. Trampoline is trampoline? You know what a trampoline is? And I'll go, oh, my God, I don't know anything. So I'll be sitting there scratching out notes, and, and the person will then bring up, you know, how this ties into that. And I'll be, oh, my God. And they'll be talking about that, and I'll be like, damn it. I, and the guy next to me, uh, you know, the 21-year-old bodybuilder would be like this. Okay. Uh, I've got to make sure my arms, when I get my arms folded, I've got to make sure make my bicep look as big. Does that look big? Not writing a note, not listening to Jack, because – he knows everything in his tiny little circle. You know, he knows that arm day uh, is Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Leg day is every third week on a Tuesday. Uh, back day is, you know, once a month. He knows everything. And he, he has every magazine. And, he, you know, oh, I did a workshop one time where at 10 o'clock, I heard crinkle, 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 crinkle. All these guys started taking protein bars. And I looked at them. Not one of them looked like they ever lifted weights in their life. But they had this... They had to have a protein bar at 10 a.m. You know, keep the greater acciliation across the asthma. They, they read the magazine that said to eat the protein. I'll have some of my young guys come here and they'll pre-workout drinks. And I go, what are you drinking? Oh, it's a mixture of glucose. And I'll stop right there and I'll go, dude, that's just sugar water. It's what you give a hummingbird. It's not, you know, don't embarrass me. Here, here's a cup of black coffee. If you want to really impress me, throw some you know, Irish whiskey in it. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing. The more you learn, and you'll notice sometimes that the, one of the knocks on me is every time I answer a question, I go back to in the beginning, Genesis chapter one, because I want to make sure you I cover all the bases. And people online, I get this thing called TLDR, too long, didn't read. And it's always the 14-year-old kids who read a magazine and they know all the Mr. Olympia competition guys and they don't know jack about anything else in life. You know, never kissed a girl. They never, they don't, they don't have any credit cards. They don't, you know, they don't own a home. They don't, they've never buried a close friend. You know, they've never watched their mother cry. And really, you're going to tell me about five sets of two versus five sets of three? Really? Let's let's try, let's try, you know, buckaroo. Is there a link Uh, between that? that abundance of information and an expectation of instant gratification, like everything has to happen right now or everything has to happen within a few weeks. Well, it would be, you know, God bless the, this generation because yeah, that is, that is something that's kind of, uh, it seems to me that that is something that is embraced. Now this is just me observing. So I can't say yes or no, but 
I don't disagree with the fact that that could be the truth. Yes. Yeah. The joke, instant gravitation wasn't fast enough. Yeah. There's a, yes. something that's quite, um, that's being spoken about quite a lot in Ireland at the minute is the fact that anabolic steroid use has risen sharply amongst young men, like as young as 16, 17, 18. And I, I wonder, is that connected with the fact that people expect just to be massive in a couple of days? Yes. The answer to your question is yes. I don't like anabolics for the same reason my coaches didn't like them. It, it gives you the results without the knowledge. You know, uh, and there's two great books, and I think they're worth a coach's time. This is interesting. So I told you to play Connect Four, remember? I'm going to tell you to read the book, Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park and Lost World. The, the Malcolm character in both, uh, both books, I spoiled the second book because I let you know he's still alive. But Malcolm's biggest thing is you are taking this knowledge without the discipline. And so you're taking anabolics without the discipline of push, pull, hinge, squat, loaded carry, snatch and clean and jerk, uh, proper foot position in the bench press. Um, you are doing these things without the discipline of the knowledge you're seeking. I've been training since 1965. I know what the journey's like. It's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be there's going to be high highs and low lows. There's going to be times where you, your eyes are going to fill up, and you're going to tell your wife. <laughs> I've had to look my wife in the eye so many times while undergoing surgery, and she'll reach over and she'll go, "I'll see you in a couple hours." And my point is always, I hope, because I've had massive surgeries because of my athletic career. You know, I've missed so many events because being at nationals and track and stuff and, and you get this little metal and you're, you know, you're in another part of the world and you, you go back to this empty hotel room and you're like, yay, I won. And you put it on the thing and you're like, yay for me. How would you address then someone, if there's a young person, say one of the, one of the kids that you're coaching or something that you suspect they're taking anabolic steroids or they want to take it? Like, how do you address that as a coach? Well, if they want to take it, I tell them simply that you're not good enough. You're just not good enough. You know, you want to do something like anabolics when, you know, uh, you know, you want to, you want to frustrated, you want to have done through the Olympic lifts, the power lifts, uh, kettlebells, TRX, uh, advanced training concepts for your sport. And then when you can't eke out any more, then let's have that conversation. You know, when I was 18, uh, I went from 162 pounds to 202 pounds in four months. And it's because I started training right. I started working my legs. And I started Olympic lifting. And my body responded by pouring 40 pounds of absolute muscle on in four months. Your body is more than happy to, to help you out if you train correctly. That was freakish, man. I walked in one night. My brother Gary hadn't seen me in a while. I looked up and goes, holy shit. Because I had just changed so much, you know, so fast. But at the time, you had like a very good role model in, and um, wasn't it Dick, uh, Nightmare? Was your coach? Oh, like so, well, Dick, Dick, who I called uh, just the other day, he's turning 87 and he, he still lifts weights, still goes for a morning walk every day. He said something, this is actually kind of important. I want you to think about this. He said something interesting. So, Dick is older now. So, he's not, a, when he was young, he was really sarcastic. He was just used to making me laugh. But he said something. That's so brilliant, and all your listeners are going to miss it. So I'm telling you front up, you're not going to hear it. 
he says to me, you know, I'm 87, Danny, and every day I get up and I walk for a couple, you know, about an hour, and I, I do, I work out about three days a week with the weights. You know, I think, I go, what? He goes, you know, I think all those years of taking the extra protein and the supplements and lifting weights and taking care of myself has really helped me out now. It was, it was so cute to hear that because at first I thought he was joking. So if you have a lifetime of taking care of your health and fitness, it pays off when you're 87. I mean, that's just kind of a joke. But he literally was shocked at that simple insight. So shocked that he didn't realize it was funny. Uh, I got to tell you a funny thing. I've been lifting weights since 1965. Okay. And I've noticed that. And I've never really missed more than, you know, with the illness from the Middle East. and, and so I never missed a planned workout probably in my life. If you add it up, I probably lifted weights four days a week since 1965. If you add it all up, okay? I go for walks every day. I take care of my health. You know what's weird, my friend, is that I think it really makes me better as a 61-year-old. Now, you kind of want to laugh at that, don't you? So I take care of myself, and now I find myself taken care of. But his insight was brilliant because you get to a certain place in your life, and basically you want to say is, he was saying to me, you know, I think... At 87, it was sure worth it to do the, the work at 67, 57, 47, 37, 27, 70. Those are the guys who take the anabolics, if they survive past 50, I, I, you know, it's a rare week I don't bury a friend you know, my age now because of drugs. In a decade from now, if I'm still lifting weights five days a week and still doing all this stuff, I'll, I'll be talking to you on the phone or in person and I'll go, you know, it's weird. You know, I decided to really take care of my recovery and my hypertrophy and my mobility in my 60s. That's really paying off in my 70s. And you'll go like this. And you'll try not to laugh at me because of respect. But it's true. The shortcut is the long way. You've done a lot of podcasts, a lot of interviews. Uh, is there any question in particular that you, you really just wish somebody would ask you so that you can just cut loose on it? Well, I think I write about it and never let go, but I'm always surprised how few people ask me about Tiffany. I'm always shocked. Uh, John Dunn, you know, no man is an island. I, I, I'm always amazed people don't ask me, ask more about Tiffany. I'm always surprised. Not surprised. I, I, I feel like that's a bit of a, a gap in people's understanding. If you marry well, if you marry well, it's the best I was going to say fucking investment you can make. A, a good spouse is what? Oh my God. Uh, financially, she's been she, she's a banker. She works for Treasury now, but oh my God, the support she gives. I mean, she's been you know, when I won this big national thing in weightlifting. So if I make the lift, I'm national champion. If I miss, I take fourth place. So I'm nervous because I know this is, a big, this is a big one. This is a big lift. This is big. And, and I'm getting there, and she walks up, and she says to me, you know, we couldn't afford to go on this trip. Yeah, I know. It was expensive. No, we could not afford this. We don't have the money. You know, I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And she looks at me, she says, make the fucking lift! So the ring... 
the head judge said later on, he goes, it was weird, you know, because you went onto the stage so fast that I go, oh, I'm scared to death of my wife. <laughs> Hell, I wasn't afraid of the bar. <laughs> and what's great is that the video of it, you know, I make the lift and I let it go down like this. The three white lights come right up. I'm my hands are coming up to about here. So the bar is still not even still bouncing a little bit. And my wife leaps into my arms. And that's the kind of thing I think people ignore, don't appreciate the value Tiffany's been in my life. I, I don't think they do. I, I don't think they do. And it's not and it's not your fault. It's my fault. I should be better at it. Um, I don't think people realize uh, the importance of reading in my life. That'd be the other one. You know, I read a lot of, uh, I tell you what, right now is the golden age of young adult fiction. Uh, uh, between the Hunger Games and Harry Potter, and, uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing time. And I'm reading it along with all, you know, little discus stores I work with. They'll be saying, Coach, have you read this book? No, I haven't. And so I just bought a book called Frame Up. It's a children's book, not children, it's a young adult book about how once you paint a painting and you put it in a special museum, that all the paintings come alive at night, but they never change. They never get older, they never get younger. And I'm looking for guys, one of my little throwers told me to read this book. It's really good, Coach, I like it, I think I like it. That's the oh, one thing I got to tell you, if I'll give you any advice at all in this world. When a young person tells you, read this book, stop everything you do read the book and then call them up and say, Hey, thanks. That was a good book. And I really like this part. I didn't understand this part because what you're turning that young child into is a lifelong reader and learner. And you're, that's the easiest way I know to make a difference. So that was the first installment of the next batch of Rebel Matters podcast episodes. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, I would love it if you went to iTunes and left the Rebel Matters podcast a five-star rating and review. You can also get in touch with me at uh, on the social media through Facebook or Instagram. I'm on Instagram at OC. I'm also on Twitter a little bit. So if that's your preferred way, drop me a message and I'll check my Twitter at the odd time and I'll get back to you if you send me a message. So, Gurumilam Wagat to Dan for taking the time out of his day to record the podcast. I uh, hope that you got something out of it, and I would definitely recommend going and checking out Dan's uh, material on his website, danjohn.net. As I normally throw into the podcast, the Rebel Matters podcast is free. It's my side project to kind of getting actually off the ground as one of the best strength and conditioning and personal training facilities in the world. Me and the team would actually work around the clock to keep on improving our services and to do our very best for our members so if you're interested and if you're in and around cork city and you want to do some personal training you can check us out at ackley.ie a-c-l-a-i.ie there on the website you can book yourself in for a free consultation and come in and we can have a, a sit a sit down for about 20 minutes and discuss your goals so other than that until the next time a card i hope you have a nice day and enjoy your week and tune in to the rebel matters podcast the next time tell your mates about it happy days slang of foil.